This stranger stood up for me and defended me, while my own teacher sat there and did nothing. Those were the words of my student. And I was the teacher he was talking about. The story has a lot more to it, though, more to it than he even knew about. It took place a, couple, a number of years ago, actually now, um, in the beautiful country of India. And um, I was there with a group of young people. We were doing a number of projects. We were working with church members mostly, um, equipping and training and, um, and providing them with resources and materials, uh, nurturing. Um, and during our time there, we had traveled. Actually, we traveled over quite a bit of the country of India by train, by car, by plane, by truck, uh, uh, I think by camel, a few other ways that we managed to travel around in India from the far um, south to the north. Um, India, as you know, is a, is a beautiful country, um, a country that is very, very uh, densely populated, lots of people. And at this point in our trip, we were in the northern part of India in the state of Rajasthan. And uh, Rajasthan is, is a place that is very rich in culture and history. Uh, well, really, all of India is. It's amazing the, ho- the history and the legacies of the different empires that existed in India for centuries, many, many years. The British united them, I guess you would say, um, used them to fight each other and so forth, and eventually um, consolidated all of India and uh, what was Sri Lanka and Bangladesh and Pakistan all into one great big country um, under, the, under the British Empire. Uh, amazing amazing feat, given the fact that these, these, these empires, these kingdoms were very, very proud and very, very wealthy and had been very, very powerful. Well, Rajasthan, in some ways, is still a little bit independent of the rest of the country. In fact, the British never really subjugated this part of the country. You'll, you'll find very beautiful places in Rajasthan, such as in Udaipur, the uh, lake palace, famous palace of the monarchs. It was built between 1743 and 1746 under Marahana Jugat Singh II. He was the 62nd successor in the royal dynasty of Miwar. And um, so this is a rich uh, place. It's very rich in history. Now, the, the palace was constructed facing east, allowing its inhabitants to pray to Surya, the Hindu sun god, at the crack of dawn. Now, this is a very cool place in the northern part of the, of the region, and uh, there on the lake, um, it was a summer resort where people, the, the royalty would come and they would relax and worship and um, enjoy the terraced gardens, the columns, the pillars, the fountains, all of the beautiful things that it in, involved. If you look in the, in the works of the palace today, you'll see an amazing work with jewels and precious stones and ivory, all this carving and uh, inlaid, uh, amazing workmanship that rivals anything that was built in Europe during the same period, probably hands down um, surpasses the workmanship of anything in other continents. Um, Beautiful, beautiful parts of this lake palace, a few pictures here. Now, we had gone and we had traveled around through Udaipur, and we had uh, spent some time there, but we had moved on to a more remote area, a more remote town. Now, can you imagine the traffic jam this would cause if it was going down Thornton Avenue? Um, 
But this is normal life in some parts of India. Camels and elephants sort of blend in with the rest of the traffic, especially when you get out of the major cities. Nobody seems to be paying much attention to the elephant that's walking, lumbering by. Um, in this small town where we were, there was actually... Um, this was, this was a part of the world where Christianity is not so welcome, to be, to be honest with you. There are parts of India that are quite uh, pervasively Christian, southern India particularly. There's lots of Christians. The early missionaries um, went there, but really Thomas, the, the disciple, one of the twelve, was the first missionary to that part of the world, we believe, at least one of the first. He, he died having crossed all the way from Goa on the western coast to Chennai, uh, or Madras on the eastern coast, and um, there you have uh, on that part of India, there are just millions and millions of, of Christians, but not so in, east, in northern India. Northern India is predominantly Hindu, and um, there are many, many people there who are hostile to Christianity, in fact. And one of the things that we were doing there, we were meeting with some of these people who were working as Bible workers, and it was really humbling. It was a humbling experience for me to, to be here in their midst and to hear their stories, because after a while you start thinking, what can I teach them? I mean, I'm coming from America where it's easy to be a Christian. We can come, and, uh, you know, once a week and we can enjoy worship service. We can go out in our community. Everybody knows we're a Christian, but it doesn't really mean much. There's not a lot of real meaningful sacrifice. These individuals, I remember one of these young men that was talking to me about how difficult his village that he was assigned to was. There were men in the village that said, you've got to stop coming here and giving Bible studies to people. We won't allow you. And if you don't, we're going to kill you. And so... There he was riding his little uh, motorcycle back to that remote village. And the men decided they would make good on their promise. They stripped him off his motorcycle, which, which of course was stolen. They beat him and left him for dead. Miraculously, he survived. Now, you would think that having been, been uh, you know, been threatened and then warned and then, and then uh, left for dead, that that would be enough. But no, once he got well enough, once he could speak, and he had some permanent damage from his beatings, but he was headed back on foot now, because he didn't have a motorcycle, back to the very same village. At some point, people said, why are you coming here? There's something about your religion that must be different than ours. And people began being open to hearing about the Jesus that he was sharing with them. These were, these were gospel missionaries that have that have demonstrated the faith of the apostles. And I was just, I was just really, really um, humbled to be there in their midst. Now, the town we were in, it wasn't a very big town. The meetings where we were, where we were holding these meetings, we couldn't, we couldn't hold them in a public hall. We had to have them on the on a Christian compound. This was like a, it wasn't owned by the Adventist Church, but it was it was owned by a Christian group. And because of the danger of that part of, of India for evangelism, we couldn't do public meetings. But on a Christian compound, it would be assumed that only Christians would come. So they would allow us to have the meetings there. And and um, we had these meetings with these with these uh, Bible workers and others, and 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 probably learned more from them than they learned from us. But um, Sabbath had passed, Sunday morning came, it was time for us to leave, and we were going to be getting back on the train um, to go to, back to, to Delhi. 
And um, as towards the end of our time there, we were going to be leaving. Now, I have to tell you about the building we were staying in, because this is sort of a complicated story, but I, I, you've got you've to understand what was going on. We were staying in this hotel that was opened for the first time that weekend, Friday when we arrived. I think we were like the first guests to check in. Everything was a little bit confused. They didn't really know what was going on. The owner was there. The manager was there. And the owner, by the way, he had this 1942 Willis Jeep parked out front. And I was like, that is the most amazing immaculate specimen of a Willis Jeep I've ever seen. I mean, left-hand drive and everything. It was, it was, uh, you don't see those in India very often. It even had the original hatchet on the back and the gas tank on the back and everything. And we were admiring this. In fact, he let us drive it around a little bit. Uh, but um, we were checking into this hotel, and this hotel was a small hotel. It was, it sort of had this, um, um, a staircase that went around the center. I think maybe there was a place for an elevator maybe that wasn't installed yet. I'm not sure, but it, it went around the center and um, there was only a room or two on each side, you know, so it was fairly small. You just sort of wade your way around this sort of small square building and um, it was five stories tall. So, you know, as in some of these countries, you get used to carrying your bags and you carry them up the stairs and, and um, it was a fairly small hotel, but they were very nice to us, very gracious and, and very excited to have us there. And, and we checked in and we, some of us were on the fourth floor, some of us were on the fifth floor. I think there may have been some on the third floor. We had four or five different rooms, you know, that we were sharing in our group. And uh, so Sunday morning, we have about half an hour after breakfast where we have nothing. We're already all packed. We're waiting for a bus to come and take us to the train station. We're going to catch the train to Delhi. That's the plan. I was sitting in my room. I was sitting in my room just sort of resting. And uh, my phone rang. And um, it's the manager downstairs. And he says, bring your luggage downstairs. We're leaving now. You're leaving now. And I said, wow, this is interesting. Well, what had happened? This is what happened. We, we had these... Now, one thing about students, you can, you, can, you can never be sure exactly what they're going to do or say. And um, I had one student who was a very smart, very, very intelligent young man. I don't want you to think otherwise. He was brilliant. Um, and he was a very dedicated man. He was a, he was a senior in high school. He was a, he was a devout Christian. He, he's, he's somebody that I admired and I still admire very much. Very, very bright. You might think otherwise when I tell you the story, but he was. He was also an extremely gifted athlete. Very, very physically gifted. He could, he was very strong. He was built like a tank and strong as an ox and um, he seemed very impervious to injury. Like, you know, you would see him, I remember one time we were, we were working, and he was up on a ladder, and, and the ladder flipped out from underneath him, and he sort of bounced off the ground, and he got up and climbed back up the ladder. I mean, you know, it was just, he was just this muscle-bound, very strong, very tough guy. And, and um, one night, a few nights earlier, he had been, he had realized that his air conditioner quit working. Now, in northern India, it's sort of like the, the climate, something like... Uh, you know, Denver in the summer or something, you know, it's, it's dry and, and not too hot, and they, they use, in some cases, swamp coolers like California instead of air conditioners. You don't know what swamp coolers are here because your evaporative potential is so little in the summer, the, uh, it's too humid. But basically, a swamp cooler just uses water and, and over, over, a, over a surface blows a fan across it, and it, it causes air conditioning um, in a very dry place. Um, well, he realized one night that his air conditioner quit working because it had run out of water. So no problem, he found a bucket in his room and he opened the window and he found he could lean out, now he's on the fifth floor, 
he found out he could, he could lean out the window and pour water into the swamp cooler. A couple trips to the bathroom, and his swamp cooler was full. Now, while he was out there refilling his swamp cooler, he, um, he happened to notice the way the building was constructed. It was, it was constructed with this exoskeleton of beams that went around the outside. Each floor had these beams and then columns that went up and down between them. And um, he thought, you know, that's really interesting. Well, Sunday morning comes. We have this half hour of free time, and something starts clicking in his mind. He knew that just below him and around the corner were some of his friends. And he decided that he could very easily climb out onto the beam that was outside his window, drop down a story to the beam below, make his way around the corner of the building, and surprise them. Now, wouldn't they be surprised? So, he carefully climbs outside the window. And um, outside the window, it didn't take him long for, or didn't take very long for somebody in the street to notice him. Now, here's a foreigner outside on the fifth floor, fifth story of a building. They're sure he must be going to commit suicide. And so a crowd gathers of gawkers who follow him as he reaches down on the concrete beam. Don't ask me how he did this. Then threw himself over the beam, dangling now until he swung the weight of his body in towards the building and let go and dropped down to the next floor, landing on the fourth floor beam. That was the hard part. Now he would make his way around and just, you know, by hugging the corner, make it around the corner onto the beam over there. And as he makes his way around and the crowd is growing and becoming more and more animated and... Um, he makes his way around. Now he's right there, and wouldn't you know it, the window to his friend's room is open. There's a curtain blowing in the breeze, and he sweeps his, the curtain aside, and it's the wrong room. <laughs> the problem is that in the room was a local couple. Now, you have to understand a little bit about this type, part of the world. In this part of the world, women don't have the rights that they have in America. This is a fairly primitive part of India. This isn't a, and, and, and this is a very misogynistic culture, and, and women are property. And when the husband sees this young foreigner sweep open the curtain, crouched out on the beam, he has only one logical assumption to make. And that is while he was out of the room, somebody else was in the room who had been hiding out there since he came back. He thinks his wife is having an affair with a foreigner. At this point, she realizes not only is her marriage at risk, her life is at risk. And she begins screaming at the top of her lungs, calling for help, calling whatever. He's screaming too. His cousin or her cousin, one of their cousins, is the chief of police in the town. And they've already called them. They call the manager. The manager comes. The, the, the union president who's traveling with us is coming up there hearing all the commotion. He's, my student is trying to convince them just to let him cross the room and go out the door, but they're not allowed to, about to let him off that window ledge until the police get there. 
and this whole screaming is going on. Finally, the, the, uh, the hotel manager, now you can only imagine what's going through his mind. Now, this is a superstitious part of the world too. So if, if this young man falls off the ledge and is injured or hurt or killed, or even if this woman is killed because of this incident or, or, or whatever, it hits the news, this is considered bad luck for his business, a bad omen for his hotel. We're the first guests to stay there. His whole livelihood is at risk. And so, so the manager comes in. He takes the guy off the windowsill. Uh, he, he hauls him down. He called me. He said, we're leaving now. They throw all of our luggage onto his 42 Willis Jeep. They find the competing hotel's bus, and they borrow it, and we're headed to the train station. Now, we get to the train station, and we're sort of... They put us behind a corner, you know, waiting for the train to come. Let me tell you, that train couldn't get there fast enough. I'm thinking, well, I'm trying to figure out what happened. I'm hearing the story from like three different people at once. And, uh, and what really annoyed me was my student was laughing about it. He thought it was funny. And so we get on the train. And, and by the way, trains aren't all like some of you may think they are. Um, that's not what our train was going to look like. Actually, you know, usually they have cabins. This is second class. There are nine classes of service in the Indian trains. Thirteen million people ride on the train every single day in India. Over, uh, it's the largest single employer in the world, the Indian Railroad. A fascinating system the British built, but that's a whole other story. You'll see, you'll see that there's these compartments, and we were in second-class AC, which looks a little bit more like this. There's only three people per bench. It's a little more roomy. You could put easily four, but um, we were, uh, because there was too, much, uh, too many of us just fit in one compartment, some of us were on one end of the car, and some of us were on the other end of the car, same car. And... Um, as, as we were going, the train came, we got on the train, we're going down the train, and I, I went down to the compartment where my student um, was sitting, and, and there was actually this foreigner, an American, that was sitting in the same compartment with them, and, and he, they were telling him the story, and again, my student was sort of chuckling about it and laughing about it, and I'm like, this is not a laughing matter. I mean, this woman could be dead as we speak, you know? I mean, this is serious stuff, like, like this isn't cute. Um, what you did. You know, I was really sort of getting irritated. And, and this foreigner was, was, a, was sort of a, one of those, you know, spiritual journey type of guys. He was there with a, visiting a guru and meditating, learning to meditate and all this. And he was really nice and really kind. And, and um, they, he was his, listening to the story. And I was sort of steaming as I made my way back to the other compartment. I sat down and, and um, then I saw the conductor coming down the train. And you have to understand, this conductor, he was a piece of art. Like, he was a Sikh, so he had his big headdress turban, you know? And um, there's a whole, all the mystique that comes with, with that, with the dagger and everything else. And, and he had his uniform, and um, he, I mean, he, he actually, this isn't a real picture of him. This is just a, a picture I found of a, of a Sikh in uniform. But this guy was sort of big, burly man, and he was coming down the train, and I leaned over to the union president, and I said, I'd give him $10. I would give that conductor $10 to put the fear of God into my student right now. <laughs> so along came the conductor. He looked at our passports, looked at our tickets, or actually just our tickets because he didn't need to worry about our passports. The union president started talking to him, and um, he was a mean-looking guy, man. I mean, he was big voice, deep voice, and um, he, he headed on down the train. I asked the union president, what did he say? He said, he'll do it for free, man. Don't worry. He'll do it. <laughs> so... So, so I make my way back down to the compartment where my student is sitting. And there, um, there the conductor arrives. I'll try to make this short. He, 
he, he, he arrives and, and um, he looks at all the tickets. They all hand him the tickets. He looks at all the tickets. He gives all of them but one back. And he looks at it. He looks around and he says, which one of you? And he reads the student's name in this really gruff voice. You could just see the color go out of his face. <laughs> he said, there's been a problem. I need your passport. Oh, he came out of that seat and went running back down to the other compartment where, the, where his handbag was and his passport. And he told everyone in the compartment, please pray, pray, please pray. They, they want my passport. They didn't ask for anyone else's passport. They just want my passport. And so he came back and... And I mean that conductor read him the riot act about how serious what he had done was and how it wasn't a laughing matter. And this man was saying, yes, sir. Now, I was sitting there, and this, this tourist, this spiritual tourist that they had just met started saying, oh, he won't do it again, officer, please. You understand, he's learned his lesson. He would never do it again. He understands how serious it is. He'll never do it. I'm just sitting there silently. And after a while... I can't keep a straight face anymore if I just leave. I just can't. I have to get out of there, you know. But this, this, this American tourist is saying, he'll, he'll never do it again. He'll never do it again. He, he, he's learned his lesson. This is what precipitated the statement. The stranger stood up for me while my own teacher sat there and did nothing. It was months that I had to keep a straight face while I listened to this story um, because he had no idea that, in fact, um, I was behind the whole interrogation. The story we're looking at today is a story of Abraham as an intercessor. And as we think of Abraham the intercessor, turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 18. We're going to look at it here, and we're going to see how important it is to have an intercessor. Um, Genesis chapter 18, we've touched on this story already as we've looked at the life of Abraham. But in Genesis chapter 18, we find here that, that you have a story of, of uh, the angels coming to investigate what's happening in Sodom. Now, it's very fascinating because, because in, if you look at the Bible, you can look at the stories in the Bible as many judgments. I don't know if you've ever done that before, but you can see how when God came to, to the Garden of Eden after Adam and Eve had eaten the fruit, and He said, hey, Hey, Adam, where are you? What have you done? Have you eaten of the fruit? You see that investigation going on there, right? God is investigating what's going on. There ends up being a decision made and consequences given, but every time in these many stories of the Bible, many judgments, where almost wherever God is involved in the story, you have a mini judgment. You always have an investigation. You always have a judgment, but you always find grace. Genesis 3 is Genesis 3.15. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, right? The promise of the seed that would crush the head of the serpent. In, in Genesis 6, the story of, the, of Noah and the flood. Noah finds grace in the eyes of the Lord. There's an investigation, there's a judgment, but there's grace. And here you find a judgment as well. Noah, I mean, Abraham has invited these three strangers in, not realizing they're angels, and one of them is not just the an angel. He's the angel of the Lord. And you'll find that capitalized in some places in the Old Testament. Um, he's also referred to in the New Testament as the archangel, or the one who's above the angels. We believe, I believe, and I could give you the Bible evidence for it, but we won't take the time right now, that Jesus is the archangel spoken of 
in, in the New Testament. He's the angel of the Lord when we find that A capitalized in modern translations because he is, he's a part of the Godhead. Now, I'm not saying here, please be very clear, I'm not saying that Jesus is an angel. I believe Jesus is fully God, okay? I want to make that very, very clear. But he's referred to sometime as the angel. Angel simply means messenger, okay? Are we, are we comfortable with that? It's not that I'm saying that, God is, that Jesus is not God or Jesus is a created being or Jesus is an angel. But he's sometimes referred to as the angel of the Lord or the messenger of the Lord. And here as, as they've finished their dinner and, and the men are getting up and they've started heading towards Sodom, Abraham gets up and he goes with them to send them on their way. And, and the Lord says, this is verse 17, this is why we understand this is not just an angel. The Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing? Since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have known him in order that he may command his children, his household after him, that he may keep that they may keep the way of the Lord and to do righteousness and justice. The Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. And the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grave, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry against it that has come to me. And if not, I will know. This is what God is saying. Listen, this is a wonderful characteristic of God that I find in this passage. Because he says, you know, the angels have been telling me. And of course, God is... God knows all things. But God is not going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah without personally making a visit. Isn't that amazing? That he wants, not just for his own benefit, because God had to know already what was going on in Sodom and Gomorrah. Wouldn't you agree? But for the benefit of all the watching universe, God is going to be above board. He's going to be transparent. There's going to be justice and judgment that is carried out in his government. And this is what he does. He, he says, I'm going to go see for myself what's happening in Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, this got, uh, this got Abraham very, very concerned. And Abraham said, it says in verse 22, the men turned away from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham stood, still, still stood before the Lord. And Abraham came near and said, would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there were 50 righteous within the city. Would you also destroy the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous that were in it? And he's pleading with God, don't destroy it. There may be innocent people there. Who do you think Abraham's thinking of while he's making this intercession? It's that, that nephew Lot and his family and his, his, his in-laws. I mean, his daughters had married many of them. They, they were related to people. They probably had prominent citizens that were now part of Abraham's extended family. And Abraham's thinking of these people and he's saying, please, for, for the benefit of the righteous, would you not spare the whole city? And the fact is that God here comes back with a very righteous and very merciful uh, decision. Verse 26, if I find in Sodom, 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare all the place for their sakes. Now, as he's saying this, Abraham's starting to doubt. In his own mind, he's starting to doubt. Well, well what if there's not actually 50? You know the story, how he starts bargaining with, with God. He starts saying, okay, well, what if there's only 30? Or what if there's only 45? Would you destroy it for just a lack of five? There's only 45. And, and God says, no, for 45. Well, what if there's only 40 there. What if there's only 30 there? Oh, what if there's only 20 there? Now this has gone back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, negotiating. Abraham's pleading with God. And then finally, verse 32, he says, let not the Lord be angry. I will speak but once more. Suppose 10 should be found there. Now he started at 50, 45, 40, 30, 20. Now he's down to 10. 
will you save Sodom and Gomorrah for only ten righteous? And he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of ten. Now this is an amazing story here because Abraham, after all, Abraham could have said, you know that lot, he's sort of selfish, isn't he? He made bad decisions. He didn't follow my advice. He didn't decide to live the way I've lived. You know, there's a lot of Christians who are very judgmental. Have you ever met one like that? There's, there's a few of them out there. They, they think, well, you shouldn't live this way, and you shouldn't. And you don't have to guess. You don't have to guess what they think because they say it. Um, that's why Jesus gave the whole parable of the beam and the moat. Remember that? Um, unfortunately, the, the, the beam in many Christians' eye is this self-righteousness and self-centeredness that begins to make people think that they can criticize other people for what they're doing wrong. When really, if they had spent time at the foot of the cross, they would speak less about other people because they would see their own need. I would see my own need as I spend more time at the foot of the cross. But here Abraham is not thinking about himself. He's not criticizing Lot. In fact, he's simply trying to intercede for God. He's standing between what, what he thinks is Lot's uh, uh, life and Lot's death. He's pleading with God, and he intercedes the intercessory prayer that he gave. And what we see from this story is very interesting. What we see here is that God is actually able to do something, even related to the wicked, that he could not do because of the righteous. Are you with me on that? There must be some ground rules in this great controversy, this war between Christ and Satan, Michael the archangel and Lucifer the fallen angel, Satan now the devil. There must be some rules which, which say something like, well, we have to preserve freedom of choice. That's God's choice anyway because he's a God of love. Since we preserve freedom of choice, Lucifer says, you can't touch people that you can't work in people's lives who haven't accepted you. And God says, okay, but what about their loved ones, their family members? Okay, Lot's made bad choices to move into Sodom, right? That's a bad decision. Satan says, he's mine now. He's he's in this wicked place. He's out of your protection. You can't protect him. But God says, wait a minute. You remember the rules. There's somebody that loves Lot. His name is Abraham. And Abraham has freedom of choice too, right? And Abraham has exercised his freedom of choice to pray for Lot. Now God is able, his hands are untied to be able to do something in Lot's life that Lot hasn't even given him permission to do because Abraham has prayed for it. Do you understand how intercessory prayer works? God is able to do even among the wicked. He can even spare the wicked for the sake of the righteous. Um, in the great controversy, it said this way, it is part of, a part of God's plan to grant us an answer to the prayer of faith, that which He would not bestow, did we not thus ask. Is it because God didn't want to give it to us from the beginning? No, but He can't. His hands are sometimes tied because of the rules of the engagement, of the war in which we're a part. There's a, there's a limit to what God can do, but when we ask, God's hands are unfettered. When we ask, God is able to do something that He wouldn't be able to otherwise do. When we ask, God is able to answer the prayer of faith and do something for His people. It may not be even somebody who wants it for themselves. Lot is oblivious at this time to Abraham's prayers in his behalf. 
But God was able to do for Lot something that he wouldn't have been able to do if, if Abraham had not interceded. Abraham is standing in the gap. Abraham is standing between the wrath of God towards sin and the sinner. Abraham is standing and saying, no, God, because I have freedom of choice, because I know you're a God of love, I'm beseeching you to spare the city. I know it's wicked, but there are good people there too. Abraham is standing between the wrath of God and the city of Sodom for Lot's, his nephew's sake. In fact, when we look at the story, we continue on the story, we find it's referred to in uh, Psalm chapter... Well, let's, let's look at a couple other instances here, and, um, and then we'll find, um, we'll find how God refers to this, or how David refers to it. There's other instances of individuals who have stood in the gap or have stood between the wrath of God and the destruction of the sinner. Let's look in Genesis chapter 32. We're talking about the intercessor today. Genesis chapter 32, we have to move quickly. Genesis 32 and verse 32. And um, this is the... This is... I'm sorry, I put Genesis down. I meant Exodus 32, verse 32. Um, my mistake here. Exodus chapter 32 and verse 32. And uh, that will get us closer to the story I had in mind. Exodus 32 and verse 32. I don't mind the typo on the screen. Exodus 32 and verse 32. And this is what it says. This is Moses praying with God. And God has said to the people, look, I'm finished with these people. They continue to rebel. They've made this, uh, this uh, golden calf and they've worshipped it. And, and they're, 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 they're just rebelling and, and forgetting and they're always complaining. And this is God. Moses goes to make atonement and to make intercession for the people. Moses returned to the Lord, verse 31, and said, Oh, these people have committed a great sin and have made for themselves a God of gold. Yet now... If you will forgive their sin... Now, this is the only time in the entire Bible that we have in the original manuscript a, an ellipse or this type of a dash. Do you see that? Do you have it in your, in your Bible? It's the only time that is found in the Hebrew and Greek manuscripts is right here in this verse. It says, if not, if you will forgive their sin, it's sort of like the, Moses' voice trails off. It's sort of like we would today put ellipses, right? Um, it's just sort of like the, there's this moment of silence, and it's not recorded that he says, if, if you will forgive, um, I pray you forgive uh, their sins, and if not, it says, I pray you blot, out of your, blot me out of your book which you have written. So this is what Moses says. Moses says, look, I know these people are rebellious, they're stubborn, they're stiff-necked, they're complaining. They're human nature, right? By the way, we still have the same human nature, unfortunately. And um, Moses, I cannot understand. I cannot understand how Moses could say what he said here. Honestly, I don't. I can't. For Moses to say, look, God, Save these people. And if you won't save them, just sit. God said, no, I'm going to make of you a great nation. I'll, I'll wipe them out and, and I'll just fulfill my promises to Abraham through you. Moses says, no, I go too. Moses is standing between the wrath of God and the people of Israel, the sinners. 
the complainers, the idolaters, the perverts. He's standing there and he's saying, God, it's me and you. And if I'm going to have anything to do with this, this situation, you're going to save them. He's standing between the wrath of God and the sinner. Now, Psalm 106 references this story. And I notice, notice this is a very interesting phrase or, or term that God uses, or the, the David uses, really, the prophet David. He's, he's using to describe what Moses did. Psalm 106 and verse 23. Psalm 106 verse 23. And um, this is recounting what happened when they made the golden calf there at Horeb. Verse 23 says, therefore he, God, said that he would destroy them. Had not Moses, his chosen one, stood before him in the breach to turn away his wrath, lest he destroy him. Do you see that phrase? To stand in the breach or to stand in the gap. The Hebrew word is perez there. and It means sort of to, to stand in the way or, or to block the path of fury and of wrath. God's wrath against sin is great. God wants to preserve truth. He wants to preserve His people. And sometimes, like at Noah before the, in the time of Noah before the flood, it is necessary to destroy life in order to save life. We know that God sometimes sees that's necessary. And God here had become so angry with the children of Israel, so frustrated, so broken, so hurt by their their persistence in rebellion that God said, look, I'm just going to have to start all over again with somebody who will again teach his children after him. I want to start with Moses. And Moses says, no, God, I'm going to be the one that deflects your anger against the people. I take it or nobody takes it. He stands in the gap. You ever heard the story of Peter in the dike in Holland? You know the, the famous story? He sticks his finger and he finds the leak and he saves the town. That is what it means to stand in the gap, to stand into the breach, to say, God, I am going to intercede in someone else's behalf because they're not interceding for themselves. I will intercede for them. I will be the one who prays for them. I will be the one who asks for their salvation. That's what Moses is doing here. Now, it's not just Moses who does this. We also find that, that, uh, that others are involved in this. And Job chapter 42, we find that Job himself understood what intercessory prayer was all about. If you look in Job chapter 42 and verse 10, it's very fascinating. I love the way it, it says it here, because you know the whole story of Job and all of his, his trials and all the things that went wrong in his life. And notice, um, the New King James says in Job 42 and verse 10, "...the Lord restored Job's losses when he prayed for his friends." When did that turn? turning point come in Job's life when he began praying for other people. Now, I'm sure that Job could have thought of enough things to pray for in his own life, right? He's, Lord, Lord, I need, I need. Sometimes our prayer lives, they focus so much upon us because unlike Moses, who had come to reflect the unselfish love of God, the character of God, our hearts are naturally selfish and we tend to pray for our own blessings. Lord, Lord, help me to get, uh, uh, you know, the pay raise. Lord, help, help me to be able to buy that new car. Lord, help, help my, you know, whatever. We have these first world problems and we focus on ourselves and, we, and we, we don't even think about other people. Job began praying for others instead of praying for himself. 
and the Lord in the King James says that Lord turned the captivity of Job when he prayed for his friends. Lord, the Lord began to return to Job what he had lost when he began praying for others. These are all indications, these are all examples of individuals standing in the gap, standing in the gap as they, as they, as they are asking for something that is um, to bless other people. It's not just these Old Testament characters we see in Exodus and in Psalms and in Job, but there's also a prophecy of the last days that there's going to be a group of people standing in the gap. I want you to turn there in Isaiah chapter 58. Remember, Abraham, we've been studying Abraham, and Abraham is the father of the faithful. The works of our father we will do, right? So if we're spiritual descendants of Abraham, and even in the last days, we're spiritual descendants of Abraham. We're going to be doing the works of Abraham. We've looked at many of the ways that we would be emulating him living in the last days, and this is another one. Isaiah chapter 58 and verse 12, it says this, Those from among you shall build the old waste places. This is talking about the last days, a reformation that would take place in Christianity. They would build the old waste places. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. Christianity forgot about many of the truths of the Bible. But Isaiah predicted the time would come when those truths would be restored and recovered and, and they would be repaired. You shall be called, notice what it says here, you shall be called the repairer of the breach, standing in the gap. That is the same phrase that we find in Psalm 106, Moses standing in the gap. At the, at, the, at, the, at the golden calf at Horeb. The restore of streets to dwell in. If you turn your foot away from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure in my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy day of the Lord and honorable, and shall honor Him, not doing your own ways or finding your own pleasure, no speaking your own words, then you shall delight yourself in the Lord, and I will cause you to ride on the high hills of the earth and feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father, the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Isaiah 58 is a beautiful prophecy predicting the time, and I believe in the last days when God's truth would be restored, including, it says here, even the Sabbath truth, right? There's going to be a special title for this group of people, though. They're called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of paths to dwell in, the same phrase, standing in the gap, standing in the breach, blocking, interceding, God has a special purpose for God's people, for His people, in the last days. You know, sometimes I wonder, I really honestly wonder, what would happen if we prayed more? Now, I don't think that just having the act of praying is by itself maybe the most consequential. But what if we prayed in such a way that God was able to change us? What if we prayed in such a way that God was able to change us so that we actually began to think and feel like He thinks and feels? I mean, the story of Moses and the story of Abraham, these are amazing stories. Here you have a merciful, gracious God being persuaded by a human being to deflect his, his wrath against sin. What if, what if God's people had that kind of character, not for picking out the faults in other people, but for praying, being, being willing to stand in the breach 
like Abraham, like Moses? What do you think might happen if God's people had that character and exercised that privilege of prayer? Our scripture today, the last verse we'll look at is, is in Ezekiel chapter 22. And I think it tells us a little bit about what could be. It tells us here, and this is a, you know, talking about the time, the time with the, of Daniel, Ezekiel and Daniel are pretty much contemporaries, and, and um, you remember that God's people are in captivity, 70 years of captivity. There's, there's just been a lot of, a lot of problems in Israel. There's just been a per- persistence in rebellion. But in Ezekiel chapter 22, in verse 30, This is God speaking, and He says, So I sought for a man among them who would make a wall and stand in the gap before me. That same phrase there, Perez. Stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land that I should not destroy it. But I found no one. Do you understand what's being said here? When it came time for God's wrath against sin, and not because God hates, God is love, right? God loves. But He has to save somebody from sin. He has to save this world. And sometimes sin and sinners have to be destroyed when they persist in rebellion so that God can save as many as He can. Are we, are we together on this? When it came time for God's people to be punished by the Babylonian overthrow and the Babylonian captivity, God even then really didn't want to have to have that happen. He had sent Jeremiah. He had sent the prophets to warn and to counsel. I'm not willing that that this should happen. Turn from me and repent. He didn't want that to happen. He says here in Ezekiel that he looked for somebody. Where's Abraham when when I need him? Where's Moses down there when I need him? Where's somebody who's going to say, God, I beseech you on behalf of your people that you would spare the judgments, that you would cause a revival to take place through me instead, that you would use us, that that you would... And God looked for that Abraham or that Moses and he didn't find one. And because nobody was standing in the gap, nobody was plugging the breach, Bible history is what it is today. I believe still today, friends, you and I, not because we're great, but because God is great, you and I have the privilege, can have the privilege, of altering the course of human history if we will be repairers of the breach. If that revival and reformation can begin with us in such a way that we stop judging people and start loving people, start loving people enough that we would actually say, God, I'll choose to be lost so that you can save them. That's when you know the beam is out of your eye. That's when you know you're not not just a hypocrite. When you can actually pray that prayer, God, wipe my name out of the book of life forever, but save that church member that really annoys me. But save that pastor that preaches too long sermons. (laughs) But save that family member who is wayward and made bad decisions. Oh, friends, today, are we children of Abraham?
What a man. What a man. The father of the faithful, standing in the breach, interceding on our behalf. Without a shadow of a doubt, the greatest intercessor of all. One night in a garden called Gethsemane, a man named Jesus began to experience the wrath of God. Not because God is a mean God, but because God hates sin. Sin destroys His loved ones. And there's a wrath. Our God is a consuming fire, Hebrews tells us. And the wrath of God against sin was bearing against Jesus because Jesus at that moment was standing in the gap. Jesus was by His own life deflecting the wrath of God for my sins from consuming me. And on that night, as Jesus prays that prayer, you remember He prayed it not just once, not just twice, He prayed it three times. Father, if there's any other way, if there's any other way to save them, let's find another way. This is too hard, this is too painful. I don't want to be separated from You throughout all of eternity. But finally there in the Garden of Gethsemane, drops of blood from burst blood vessels streaming down his face. The stress was so great. The burden was so great. Finally there, Jesus made the decision, even if it means eternal separation from my my Father who I love so much, I'm willing to die for Chester and his sin. I'm willing to be the finger in the dike. I'm willing to be the repairer of the breach. I'm willing to stand between the wrath of God for sin and the sin of Chester. And friends, even if you were the only one to ever live in the annals of human history, He loves you and I enough He would have done it for just one of us. The ultimate one who stood in the gap. The ultimate intercessor is a man named Jesus who loved you so much he said, blot me out of, my, out of your book but save her. Save him. When we see that kind of love, can we just turn away? Can we just say that it doesn't matter? Can we just be unchanged? Or shouldn't it call for us to say, God, if you love me that much, I want to love you in return. I want, to ex- I want to accept the benefits of that kind of a sacrifice, of that kind of a love. How about you this morning? Amen. You want to say, Lord, thank you. Thank you for standing in the gap for me. Forgive me for criticizing my brothers and sisters instead of standing in the gap for them. Make me pray for my friends. Make me pray for my family. Make me pray for my church family. Make me have a heart like your heart so that like Moses and Abraham, even Job, I can reflect your character in these last days. I can be a part of that group of people. Prophecy says it's going to happen that are known as the repairs of the breach.
the restorer of paths to dwell in. Is that your desire today? Amen. Father in heaven, as our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, we just sense your voice speaking to us, your spirit calling for our hearts. Lord, I know there's somebody here who today is convicted by your spirit, as I've been convicted by your spirit today, that I ought to speak less of others and pray more for them. Lord, I just want to pray that you would help us to see the great love that you had for us there in the Garden of Gethsemane, that you were willing to give everything, your very life, so that we could live. Thank you for standing in the gap. Thank you for, for standing between the wrath, the righteous wrath of God against sin and our sins, us. Lord, today I just want to pray. You, you, you know each heart here. You know each decision. You know each, each one who wants to join me in a commitment today. I want to pray, Lord, that, that we today might accept that sacrifice in our behalf. That we might, intercede, we might accept the Savior as our intercessor and that we might, through Him, be saved and through Him become agents of intercession and salvation for others. Lord, when people see this community, this family of faith in Dalton, I pray that they might not think of what we do or what we eat or what we wear or anything else as right as those things might be, but I pray that they might, number one, know that we love people and that we are praying for our neighbors and friends' salvation. Oh, help us, Lord to be like Jesus. Help us to walk in the footsteps of Father Abraham, the father of the faithful, even in the last days. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.